The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. If you're not still standing, will you stand on up with everyone else real quick? I, I honestly, guys, I can't, I can't think of anything greater, and tell me if you guys agree, than those moments in life where you come to church and uh, you got a lot of stuff going on and you're just confused about things maybe or maybe you just don't feel even like being here. <laughs> you don't feel like you know much of anything at the time. And then in that time of worship or in that time where the gospel is presented, clarity comes. You guys know what I'm talking about? When you're in worship and clarity comes and it's, it's as though everything that didn't make sense all of a sudden makes sense. And it's not even like a mathematical thing. It's just a moment of clarity where you've given yourself to the Lord in worship. You've understood the gospel, been freed by the gospel. And you say, Lord, I get it. (laughs) It's all about you. Those are the best moments, right? They truly are. And it's just such a good thing that we could share that as a family tonight as we worship. But let's just, um, as we're standing, um, let's read the text together. uh, Just out of respect to the text, if you guys grab your Bibles really quick. It's going to be Mark chapter 11. And then we're going to pray. In old school churches, they make you stand when you read the Bible, so I thought, hey, we'd just uh, give that a try. Mark chapter 11. I wonder if we could get these lights on too, guys, maybe. It says this, Starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Father, tonight we come before you uh, fully understanding that we have zero ability to will ourselves into understanding the gospel deeper. We have zero ability uh, to conform our own minds to your mind. Lord, we have zero ability to deal with our own sin, to deal with our own struggles, to deal with our own confusion, Father. And we fully recognize tonight, God, as your body, as your people, our dependency on the Holy Spirit to come in and to give life to these dry bones. Father, would you come in and breathe life into the words that I will speak? Will you come in and make the words that, that are just out of my mind and out of, out of even just a page, and would you make them living words, God, that would transform lives, 
that would go beyond just a mental understanding, Lord, that would change hearts, that would transform the deep parts of our heart, Father. Lord, with this text tonight, God, as we seek to understand it, as we seek to look deeper into it, Lord, with this text, minister the gospel unto us, the life-changing gospel, Lord. I just pray that and invite you into this place to do work tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. What's that? Oh, yes, yeah, sit down. <laughs> We're going to be standing for the entire message tonight. I have 12 pages of notes. <laughs> Tell John Adams is tired. He's like, can I sit now? Is, this, is that okay? So about an hour before service, I was up here doing some sound stuff, and uh, I made a nice little leap onto the stage, and I heard this sound. You guys have heard the sound before. It's the sound everyone wants to hear an hour before they do a public event. It's the sound of rip. <laughs> and I, have like, I had like a six-inch rip in my jeans in a very unhealthy place. Um, so I called my lovely wife, and she brought me a change of pants, so we're all good. But man, whew, close one. Sadly, that's not the first time that's happened to me. So, um, Okay, Mark chapter 11. Maybe I should skip back a little here. So we've been going through Mark for, for a number of months now. It's been an awesome journey. We've been looking at discipleship specifically, talking about what it means to be disciples, talking about what it means to make disciples and... Um, It's been great. We've seen Jesus come into contact with multiple different people. We've seen Jesus come into contact with with religious rulers, with with, uh, people high up in society, low in society, with men, with women, with Gentiles, with Jews, uh, with soldiers, with adulterous women. We've seen him come in with Samaritan women, all sorts of different types of people. We've seen Jesus encounter, uh, is there some feedback or something? Is that just, yeah? I wonder if we can find that. Um, all kinds of different people that, that Jesus has come into contact with. And today we're going to sort of turn a corner, so to speak, in the book of Mark. The book of Mark is the shortest gospel out of the four. Um, and and the, what I mean by turning the corner is that for the last 11 or 10 chapters, we've actually been looking at his ministry um, prior to his, ter- his time in Jerusalem. The, the entire rest of the book of Mark actually is solely focused on his last week of life, his last week of ministry, um, what a lot of the church would refer to as Passion Week, the last seven days of his ministry in Jerusalem. It's incredible to me, actually, to think about the fact that, that more than, almost, almost half of the book is entirely dedicated to seven days. So that kind of tells me something. It tells me that the, the next amount of chapters that we're going to look at is important, that there's some really important stuff in there that we're going to take a look at because Mark is so in detail with it. So in 11, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, verse 1, to Bethpage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. So Jesus, at this point in time, has come to Jerusalem. Right? A little bit of background about Jerusalem here because there is a, a cultural difference here. And you learn this as soon as you go to Israel. Jerusalem is a big deal. Okay? It's a big deal today. It was a big deal then. It was a big deal a thousand years before this. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Okay? It's the focus, the pinnacle of Israel is Jerusalem. It's the thing that everyone is fighting over. Um, Jerusalem, even today, it's special, special to multiple different religions, multiple different people groups, and people are constantly fighting over Jerusalem. Now, 2,000 years ago, when the New Testament 
was written, and when Jesus uh, came into Jerusalem, it was the same thing. Jerusalem was the focus, the heart, the center of Israel. It's where God had promised that he was going to set up his kingdom. It's the city of David, where David ruled from. There's so much history there. Even being in Israel and seeing how many different nations have ruled that city specifically, it's a sought-after place. There's always been someone living there. There's always been people there. It's always been a bustling and a focused place. Same goes 2,000 years ago. So Jesus makes his journey. He just came from Jericho, and he ascends the 2,500 feet up to, to Jerusalem. As you guys know, Jerusalem is up. You go up to Jerusalem. And as he's ascending, he's heading into the craziest point in his ministry. The next week is going to be the most jam-packed, insane. So many events happen. It was crazy. When we went to Israel, we spent um, about a week just in other places, the Dead Sea and things like that. We spent a whole other week just in Jerusalem, and we didn't even come close to seeing all the sites there. So much of what we read in the New Testament happened in Jerusalem. It's always been just the focus of Israel. So Jesus, in his ministry, now he's making his way into Jerusalem, and he wouldn't be the only one doing it. He's not the only one at this point in time making his way into Jerusalem. The reason being is because there's a festival going on. You guys might have heard of it before. It's called, uh, well, I just forgot what it was. (laughs) The Passover, woo! Uh, Passover feast. I should have been like, do anybody know what it is? Passover feast, kind of a big deal. Um, He's going up for the Passover feast. Now, we need to talk about that. We need to unpack that a little bit. What is the Passover feast? Because uh, it, it plays into a lot in, in, as far as what was going on in Jerusalem at the time and, and why there was sort of the atmosphere that there was in Jerusalem. The Passover feast, if you guys don't remember, was a feast specifically to remind Israel of what God had done for them in Egypt. Okay? Centuries before, if you remember, um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph had gone in, into, the, into Egypt and, and was a ruler in Egypt and was someone of priority in Egypt. And eventually his brothers had joined him in Egypt. And as they multiplied and grew, they actually ended up becoming a giant race within Egypt, but they were slaves. They were um, under the control of Egypt, okay? So God comes in and he actually sets free his people. If you guys have read the book of Exodus... Um, through Moses, leads God's people out, right? But if you remember, the way that God did that was he sent 10 plagues, specifically 10 plagues, in order to make Pharaoh release his people. Now, if you remember, the 10th plague was the most severe of all. It was the plague of the firstborn, that this death angel was going to pass over Egypt, and that the firstborn son of everyone was going to die. This severe plague. But God created a way out for Israel. He said, Because Israel, you are my people, he said, I want you to sacrifice a lamb in a specific way. I want you to put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And when the death angel passes by, he'll see the blood of the lamb and he'll know to pass over that place. Okay? So Israel, even to this day, that's still, it's a celebration. They're celebrating the Passover to remind them that they've been freed from the oppression of Egypt to remind them of how God spared them. Um, and and the, the symbol of this is this lamb being slain, along with some other things, the unleavened bread and things that we won't go into. Um, but this is an important feast, okay? This is a feast that literally would attract pilgrims from all around Israel. At the first month of the year, people would come from all around, and Jerusalem would have been a bustling, crazy place. We're talking literally of historical accounts of over two million people inhabiting Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. So this is crazy. It's nuts. There's people everywhere, people coming from all over the place. 
One thing to remember too, not only would there be a lot of people, there'd be a lot of tension. The reason being is because you think about it, you have a people group, Israel, in their homeland, celebrating a feast that represents God, setting them free from oppression and people and, 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 and a foreign government. And guess what? They're living under a foreign government, Rome. So here they are celebrating, yeah, God set us free from Egypt. We're no longer slaves to Egypt. We're slaves to Rome. So you can imagine there would be tension there as they're celebrating this. Um, I saw this firsthand when I was in Israel. We were in Jerusalem during a celebration that they have there called uh, Jerusalem Unification Day. And what this is, is it's, it's a holiday basically centered around the fact that Israel now is in control of Jerusalem again. So you literally have thousands of high school and kids, stu- students with Israeli flags marching up and down the streets. People everywhere, it was crazy. But and anyone that was there with me c- can attest to this. You could feel the tension. There was a tension there because, yeah, woohoo, you know, Israel uh, owns Jerusalem again, but guess what? You got thousands of Arabs and Palestinians that are upset at the fact that Israel owns Jerusalem and they hate the fact that they're marching up and down the road with Israeli flags. So there's this tension there. There's extra security. There's SWAT teams marching up and down. There's soldiers everywhere. There was riots earlier that day with kids throwing bottles and tear gas and just crazy stuff. You could feel the tension in Jerusalem because you have two different people groups that want two different things. They both want Jerusalem. It's exactly what's going on here. Okay? You got all these thousands of Jews coming in to celebrate, to do their traditions, to come in and to, to remind themselves of the Passover feast. And then you have Rome, who's controlling and ruling over Israel at that time. And you can imagine there's tension between the two. So this is kind of the state of Jerusalem at this time. Two million people. It's crazy. Even in, in, in studying some of the history, there's a, an account in 40 AD of there being 260,000 lambs being brought into Jerusalem for Passover feast. Isn't that crazy? And that's how you get that number of over two million people. I mean, if 10, about 10 people per lamb, you're looking at over two million people coming into Jerusalem to sacrifice um, a lamb and to, to have the Passover feast. It's crazy. Ironically, as we'll talk about, not a single one of those lambs could pay for the sins of any of us, <laughs> right? Um, the lamb came into Jerusalem, as we'll see. So it's 30 AD, as best as we know. Now I'm going to go over some chronology with you guys. Um, tonight's going to be a little less just like application and a little more just looking at, at some of the, the, the background and some of the, the facts in this, because there's some really interesting things that, that prophetically um, are amazing. Um, but I want to look at some of the chronology here. So it's 30 AD. Jesus has been um, doing ministry for, for almost three years now with his, with his disciples. Now on Saturday, okay, now this is important, it seems, seems specific, but Saturday Jesus arrives in a little town outside of Jerusalem called Bethany, okay? It's in the east. It comes to a little town called Bethany. You guys may remember that town. It's the town that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in. Okay, now Mary, Martha, Lazarus, why are they important? Well, they were considered the friends of Jesus, right? They were the ones that, that house that he would stay in. He were, they were the people that were considered his closest friends. So he comes to the house of, of, of Lazarus and Mary and Martha on Saturday. Um, we see there in John 12 where uh, Mary anoints Jesus' feet, remember that? That's, that's a day prior to the story we're looking at. Then Sunday, the next day, it says, um, a large crowd comes to see Jesus and to see Lazarus. Now, you've got to remember, too, this is important, there's a lot of hype and, 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 and publicity right now about Jesus at this point, mostly because of one specific miracle that he did, and that was Lazarus. The fact that Jesus raised a man from the dead that had been dead for four days, 
was incredible. People were coming from all around. Now you got an extra two million people in this city. You can guarantee that some people are going to leave Jerusalem and walk the two miles over to Bethany and check out this Lazarus who has been raised from the dead. So you got people on Sunday going out to view that. All these people um, in town, they're all interested to see Jesus. They want to see Lazarus. They want to see what's going on with this whole thing. Now Monday is where our story takes place. I know this seems boring, but trust me. Monday is where our story takes place. Now that's debatable. Some people say Palm Sunday. To the best of my ability, it seems like actually it should be Palm Monday, (laughs) to be honest, looking at it chronologically. Um, Monday, Jesus enters Jerusalem. Here's why this is important. According to the Mosaic law, okay, when, it, when Passover feast was given as a feast to Israel and God said, I want you to do this for a reason, he gave specific guidelines and he said on the 10th of Nisan, okay, the month of Nisan, the 10th day of that month is when you're to bring the lamb into Jerusalem to be sacrificed. When did Jesus come in to Jerusalem? On the 10th of Nisan. Jesus came in not by chance, by, by the way, not by chance. Jesus entered into Jerusalem. The lamb that will take away the sins of the world entered into Jerusalem on the same day that officially, according to Mosaic law, that God put forth that the lamb was supposed to come in to be sacrificed. That's phenomenal. It gets better. So Monday, Jesus enters Jerusalem. Tuesday, the next day, Jesus cleanses the temple, curses the fig tree. We're going to look at that next week. Wednesday, the Olivet Discourse, Judas bargains with Sanhedrin, and then Thursday, we have the Passover feast. The night before, when you were actually supposed to have the Passover feast, Jesus takes his disciples into the upper room, has this feast with them. He, he, he instates um, communion, so this is my body, this is my blood. Um, and then the next morning, or that night, Jesus is betrayed. The next morning, he's tried, and then he's crucified. When was he crucified? On Friday. What was Friday? Friday was Passover. When was the lamb supposed to be slain? On Passover. When was Jesus slain? On Passover. (laughs) When was the lamb supposed to be brought in? The 10th day of Nisan. When was Jesus brought in? On the 10th day. Do you you catch this? This isn't an accident. This isn't just, oh, man, it's so cool. Jesus is like, yeah, maybe I'll roll in when, you know, right when the lamb's supposed to come in and I'll make sure they crucify me right on this day. The Father is orchestrating this. This is all according to God's sovereign plan that this would happen in a specific way. And the entirety of even Passover and all of that just signifies and was to illustrate and to point forward to Jesus as the lamb that takes away the sins of the whole world. None of this happens by accident. The fact that Jesus comes in on donkey, we'll talk about that, that's not an accident. The fact that um, he comes in on Passover, it's not an accident. The exact days that he comes in is not an accident. The examination by the priest, the fact that Jesus actually went before the high priest before he was crucified, the lamb was supposed to go to the high priest to be examined before he was crucified. It's phenomenal. The betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter, this was all part of Jesus' ultimate plan, and that was to go to the cross and to die for you and I that we could be reunited with God. It's all part of his sovereign plan. None of this was taking Jesus by surprise. He knew. He knew where he was headed, he knew what was going on. So picking it up in, uh, in our text in verse one. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt 
tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Um, hey, Mitch, can I have your car? Because the Lord has need of it. So is that okay? We, you toss me your keys? <laughs> I just want to see if it worked. I mean, it, it worked here for, for them, you know. Um, can you imagine this guy, you know, like some people just show up and, and start untying your donkey, and you're like, hey, what are you, what are you guys doing? Oh, the Lord needs it. Okay. <laughs> Sweet. Right on. Sounds good. They went, they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside the street. They untied it. Some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Just like Christ said, right? He knows what's going on. I, wanna, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but, but there's a couple things in here I want to point out. First of all, I mean, seriously, put yourself in the shoes of this guy, Right? I mean, I, it doesn't really say much about him. It doesn't say if he has a, a bunch of donkeys, if he has a bunch of livestock. It doesn't say if he, he's poor or rich or whatever. But, but just putting yourself in the shoes of this guy, I mean, just some random people come along and start taking your car. I mean, you're going to be like, hey, guys, what's going on? What are you doing here? This is my car. And the Lord has need of it. Okay, whatever. I, 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 want, I want to t- t- take just two things from this. Now, if this guy knew, if this guy knew what was going to happen and what the reason for Jesus needing this donkey, I wonder what his response would have been. I think he would have had two responses. And I think we have similar responses when it comes to how much we're willing to give to the Lord. Firstly, I think if he knew what was going to happen, and they come and say, hey, we need your donkey, Jesus is going to ride, ride it into Jerusalem, I think the first way he might have responded is say, what do you mean? You, you, want, you want a donkey? Don't you want something better? Don't you want a horse? Don't you want, why would you want my donkey. I mean, there's going to be something greater, something better that you would want to use than that, right? That's not worthy. Jesus, you should pick something else. You see him saying that, having that attitude? And I was just thinking about this. This is kind of what we do when God says, I need this from you. I want this specific thing from you. There's an area of service that maybe I want you to get plugged into that I want you to be doing. I want you to be exercising and you say, ah, Lord, someone better for that. What do you want my donkey for? I was, I was joking around with my wife that this is my call to ministry verse because <laughs> the Lord had need of a donkey, you know. But, but seriously, you know, whatever that thing is in your life, that thing is in your life, that donkey, that yeah, yeah, God, I know you want me to do that, but it's just really not worthy of you. I mean, there's got to be something greater. There's a lot of things, guys, that we need in this church, a lot of areas of service that need to happen. We need more people in our kids' ministry. We need more people to help set up chairs and set up equipment. And if some of you guys think, yeah, I'm not capable of leading worship, I'm not capable of running sound, I'm not capable of, of leading a classroom or teaching kids, please don't rule out yourself as serving at this church. Can I just say that? Please don't rule yourself because God loves to use small things. And we need people that are just willing to help. Not people that have awesome, just primarily awesome and specific skill sets, but people that are just saying, hey, I'll do whatever you need. If you need me just to hang out with some kids and just play and get on the ground and play with, with toys and I don't have to teach the class, that's great. We need whatever you have. But specifically, if, I don't know how else to say it, G- Jesus needs your donkey. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He, he wants to use whatever it is that you have, whether it's great or small. The other response he might have had, I think, would be to say, I have something greater than a donkey for you. <laughs> What do you want to use my donkey for? I mean, I have this awesome horse. What do you want to use that for? Which is another approach, I think, that when it comes to serving the Lord in church, people kind of say, yeah, I know you want to use this, but I'm kind of greater than that. I have better skills. And I've literally had conversations with people with that. I know you guys need people to set up chairs and stuff, but, but I'm better at this. Well, we don't have need for that necessarily. 
I mean, are you willing to humble yourself and say, I'm gonna serve wherever service needs to happen? Are you willing to say, I'm gonna give whatever it is that Jesus has need of? And this moment, Jesus needed a donkey and this guy gave it to him. That's awesome. What is the needs that, that God has for you in this moment? Just a side note, I don't wanna spend too much time on that. Verse seven. They, bought the colt, they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Leafy branches, that's kind of funny. That's, that's a funny way to put it. And we go cut me some leafy branches. So why does Jesus ride in on a colt? I want to talk about this a little bit. It's kind of important. It seems a little bit random if you don't look at some of the background, if you don't look at some of the history as to why specifically God um, would choose to have him riding in on a colt. First, first of all, Matthew answers this question. In Matthew 21, it says, verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. So like we talked about earlier, the reason, specifically, as Matthew says, that he comes in riding on a donkey is because this is what was prophesied. This was a sign, this was a symbol that this is the Messiah, this is the one that the Old Testament scriptures spoke of, that, that was pointing forward to. Secondly, the reason Jesus rode in on a colt was to show that he was the prince of peace. It's to show that he was the prince of peace. What I mean by that is it's important to understand historically that when a king would ride into town, depending what he would ride on would show or illustrate what was going on at the time. So if it was a time of war, the king would roll in on a horse, on a war horse. If it was a time of peace, the king would roll in on a donkey. There's a difference there. And so Jesus is illustrating something here that he's not coming into Jerusalem to make war. He's not coming into Jerusalem to eradicate sin, to come in and to, to, to pour out wrath or to, to come with a sword in his mouth as we'll see he, he'll do later. He's coming in with peace. He's coming in to go to the cross to allow there to be peace between God and between man. I love this Spurgeon quote. He says, talking about this, and he says, O ye kings of the earth, why, ca- why Christ should not have been mightier than you? If his kingdom had been of this world, he might have founded a dynasty more lasting than yours. He might have gathered troops before whose might your legions would be melted like snow before the summer sun. He might have dashed to pieces the Roman image till a broken mass like a potter's vessel shivered by a rod of iron. It might have been dashed to shivers. If Christ cared for this world's glory, it might soon be at his feet. If he willed to take it, we should raise a tongue, who should raise a tongue against him? Or who should lift a finger against his might? But he cares not for it. His kingdom is not of this world. Else would his servants fight. Else were his ministers clothed in robes of scarlet. And his servants would sit among princes he cares not for. I wish people still talk like that. Yeah, that's awesome. I wish I could even think like that. What's he saying there? He, he's saying Christ is entering into Jerusalem it's, it's a perfect illustration of his humility. It's a perfect illustration of the fact that Jesus could come in and could have Rome, the, the world-ruling empire, one of the greatest empires in all of history, he could have them in submission instantly. He could come in and conquer Jerusalem simply by speaking words. He could call down legions to come in to fight with him. He could enter Rome like, a, like most kings would with, with all of his armies behind and all of his power on display for everyone to see. But Jesus chooses to enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
with peace. He chooses to take a humble way. And what's really interesting, looking at history even, and and studying this a little bit, um, Jesus wouldn't have been the only person to enter into Jerusalem. In fact, probably a few days prior, I didn't know this, Pontius Pilate, he was a Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor that was responsible for, for, for taking care of uh, that area would have also rode in to Jerusalem. And I never thought about that, but he wouldn't have lived in Jerusalem, you know that? He would have lived in Caesarea. The Romans didn't want to live in Jerusalem, they didn't want to live amongst the Jews, they wanted to live in their palaces over on the Mediterranean Sea, which is beautiful, which is awesome. So he would have lived there, and before Passover feast, he would have traveled with his men into Jerusalem, and he would have made his own entry. Now, Pontius Pilate, though, you can imagine, his goal would be not to come in peace, not to come showing humility, but his goal would be to show power, to intimidate, to show these Jews, hey, don't even try anything because I have my legions behind me and if you guys get any ideas or you get feisty or you try to do any kind of fighting during this Passover feast, we're gonna take you out. He's trying to show his power as he enters in. So you can almost have a contrast there between Pontius Pilate, how he would have entered Jerusalem versus Jesus, how he entered Jerusalem. Verse nine. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. So you can sort of imagine this, okay? You're gonna have to use your imagination a little bit. There's a lot of people there, okay? Now, not everyone would have been in Jerusalem yet for the Passover feast, but a lot of people would have been there. Some historians would, would guess two, 3,000 people all gathered around. There's people, uh, you know, on the sides of the road, there's people marching behind, people marching in front, and here comes Jesus. I mean, you can, you can, you can picture it. Here comes Jesus sitting on a donkey with his 12 disciples, these ratty, poor, homeless, hobo-looking fishermen entering into Jerusalem through the eastern gate and this giant crowd of people laying down palm branches and laying down blankets and saying, Hosanna, save now. It'd be an amazing thing to see. I mean, it almost seems like it's beyond. And Hosanna, yes, that means save now. They're, they're saying, come king, set us free from Rome. Set us free from this tyrant. Do what you did in Egypt. We don't want to be under this people anymore. We want to be a great nation again. It kind of it reminds me a little bit of whenever we elect a new president, doesn't it? Everyone's so fired up. This guy's going to do it. He's going to be the one, Right? And people are momentarily so stoked about whoever the new president is. I mean, maybe some people are still excited, but think about how excited everyone was when Obama got elected. I mean, everyone was stoked. Is is everyone that stoked now? No. People get really fired up when they think, man, something's going to change. Something's going to happen. And what's going on is there's all this talk about this prophet, Jesus, and maybe he's the Messiah, and he's going to come in. He's going to liberate us from Rome. So we're going to come in, and we're going to give him a greeting. We're going to lay down these palm branches. It almost seems like this is the coronation of Jesus. It almost seems like this is it. This is when he's gonna come into Jerusalem. He's gonna take his throne. There's people that are there to greet him that seemingly want him to come in and to rule them. But is it the true coronation of Jesus? No, it's not. It's not the true coronation of Jesus. Look at verse 11. This is really interesting. Now, only, no, only Mark has this in this story. All four Gospels contain this story, but only Mark has this specific thought. All, the, all of the other ones don't even really say how this thing ends. It just drops off. Yeah, Jesus entered in, they laid down palm branches, they said, Hosanna, that's it. Mark actually finishes the story and says what happens, and it's really anticlimactic. Check it out. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple 
Okay, pause there. The temple was the pinnacle of Jerusalem, okay? It's the highest point in the city. It's when you come into Jerusalem, you're there to go to the temple, okay? That's why everyone is fighting over it today. It's the pinnacle of Jerusalem. It's the focus of Jerusalem. The temple mounts. So when Jesus would have come in as the king, his destination wouldn't have been Jerusalem specifically. It would have been the temple in Jerusalem. That was where he was headed. That is where he was going. He gets to the temple. Again, verse 11. Entered into Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What? Are you kidding me? That's like, seriously, Mark? I mean, that's just, that's boring. <laughs> I mean, all this energy and excitement and the, Jesus is coming in, he's the Messiah, he's the king, save now. All this stuff, he gets to the temple and he looks around and he says, I'm just gonna go. <laughs> like, I mean, that's just, that's just weird. If this is really the coronation, this is really the time where Jesus becomes the king, something else would happen, Right? The entry is just the beginning. He gets there, they have, pro, they, they have a party going, they have all kinds of things going. Something's wrong here. What's wrong here? First of all, it's not the coronation of Christ. And I wanna, I'm gonna make four observations, they're gonna be quick and then we're gonna go home. Um, I mean, you can go wherever you want afterwards. <laughs> we're all going home tonight. Uh, first observation there's a difference between momentary popularity and excitement in true faith, okay? There's a difference. We see this all throughout Christ's ministry, don't we? People getting all fired up and all excited and then Jesus says something and all of a sudden everyone's gone. You remember that? Jesus is, you know, acquiring all these hundreds of different disciples and then Jesus says something about eating his, his body and drinking his blood and they're just like, we're out of here. We're gone. This is weird. Remember Jesus asked his disciples, are you gonna leave too? And they say, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We see this all throughout Jesus' ministry. People getting all fired up. He does a miracle. We're excited. We wanna see more. We want more food. Feed us again. (laughs) But then all of a sudden, the crowds disappear. It's almost as if this, just out of nowhere, all these people show up and they're excited and then Jesus gets into the temple and then it's just done. Where'd everybody go? I was watching, uh, don't get me wrong, I don't, I don't even, I was so young, I don't even remember all the facts of the Princess Diana thing, but I was watching this movie about it, and it was really just amazing how, like, all these people were, like, crying and freaking out about this Princess Diana thing. I'm like, you guys don't even know her. Like, what are you guys getting so worked up about? It was almost like everyone was working each other up into this crazy thing um, about this Princess Diana thing. I was like, it's amazing how we do that, isn't it? We get so pumped up about things we don't even know about. It's so excited about things that we don't even know are true. Now, I don't know exactly the motives or exactly the heart of this crowd. If they truly were looking for Jesus to truly be um, who he was there to be, or it could have been a mixture of both. I'm not going tr- to try to guess too hard on that, but the point is, is that we can't put too much stock sometimes in just what the crowd does, because crowds, they, they come and they disappear. Everybody loves Obama, everybody hates Obama. Everybody loves this person, now they hate that person. It's just the way it goes. And this is sort of what happens here. It's like this momentary excitement and there's no finish. And secondly, importantly, this is, this is huge. They were receiving him based on an assumption of his intention. Okay, let me, let me see what that means. They, they wanted Jesus, but they wanted him to be who they wanted him to be. <laughs> they were receiving him based on what they thought he was going to do. It says, if you, if you look at it, it says specifically in verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. 
The kingdom of what? David. The kingdom of David. Well, that sounds good. I mean, yeah, and Jesus is from the line of David, the kingdom of David. What is the kingdom of David? It's Israel. They're talking about Israel. Blessed be the kingdom of Israel. Yay, Jesus is coming in. He's going to build up the kingdom of Israel. He's going to kick Rome out, and then Israel's going to be awesome. What kingdom are we talking about here? Israel's kingdom. They're, They're looking for the glory of Israel. They're not necessarily looking for the kingdom of God, the kingdom that he is here to build. They're receiving Jesus based on what they want him to do. They're receiving the Jesus that they want. Now, guys, listen, is this not what our culture is doing? Our culture loves Jesus, their Jesus, right? You know, Jesus is my homeboy. They love the Jesus that accepts sin. They love the Jesus that is not, uh, doesn't say anything about one way. They love the Jesus that has his arm around Buddha and has his arm around Gandhi. They love that Jesus, right? They love the Jesus that allows them to do whatever they want. They love the Jesus that they pray to when they're about to get in a car accident. Or they love the Jesus that, 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 that gives them what they want and gives them um, happiness and joy or whatever. They love that Jesus. But is that really Jesus? Our culture loves a Jesus that is not the real Jesus, and they're crucifying daily the real Jesus. What do I mean by that? Our culture is doing everything that they can to crucify the real Jesus. They hate the real Jesus. They don't want anything to do with the real Jesus. Why? Because he demands their lives. Because they're blind, just like I was. They are, our culture is crucifying the real Jesus. They want nothing to do with the true gospel but they will embrace a false Jesus. It's amazing, and I can't say for sure that this is the same crowd that crucified him or not. That might be too bold to say that, but realistically, the feeling towards Jesus in Jerusalem as a whole changed drastically from when he came into Jerusalem to when he went to the cross. I mean, it was obvious the crowd wanted Barabbas, right? It wasn't like, oh, it's kind of half and half. They wanted nothing to do with him. Why? Because he wasn't the Jesus they wanted. It wasn't it. Number three, and this is, this is cool. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. You know that? He's the lion and the lamb. This is something I haven't thought about in a while, and as I was studying it today, it just blew me away. Revelation, it talks about Jesus, and, and it literally, it describes him as two completely different things. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, Lion representing the most powerful, uh, the most powerful carnival in the jungle, right? The one that, that's dominant, the one that's fierce, the one that's feared, the one that's powerful. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Yet, Jesus is the lamb. He's both. Listen to this. Jonathan Edwards says, The lion excels in strength and in the majesty of appearance and voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience is sacrificed for food and clothing. But we see that Christ in the, net, in the text compared, he's talking about Revelation, in the text <clears throat> compared to both because the diverse excellencies of both wonderfully meet in him. Let me read that again. But we see that Christ in the text compared to both because the diverse excellencies of both wonderfully meet in him. There is in Jesus Christ a conjunction of such really I don't even know how to speak this language. There is in Jesus Christ a conjunction of such really excellencies as otherwise would have seemed to us utterly incompatible in the same subject. Give the guy a break. He's from the 1600s. Um, 
I don't even know how to read some of that stuff. But there's some really good things in there. What he's talking about is how is it possible that Jesus is this lion and he's this lamb? It's phenomenal to think about that our God literally is the definition of strength, yet the definition of humility. That our God literally can speak and everything disappears. That he can breathe stars, that he can breathe galaxies, yet he became a man, took on human flesh, took on a weak state, and allowed other men to crucify him on a cross, to beat him, to mock him. How can he possibly be at the same time this lion and at the same time this lamb? It's a phenomenal thought. Jesus is fully sovereign and omniscient, yet still offers a call to choose him. Jesus is fully just, fully righteous, holy and wrathful towards sin, yet is fully gracious and loving toward us, the producer of sin. Jesus is omnipotent and all-powerful, yet allows us to play a part in his plan. Isn't that phenomenal that we serve a God? We serve a God that can be fully wrath, wrathful and indignant towards sin, yet fully gracious to us, the producers of sin. Right? What an amazing God we serve. He is the lion, he is the lamb. And the snapshot that we're looking at tonight of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, he is the lamb. He is the lamb. This is not his true earthly coronation. When is his true earthly coronation? When does Jesus really come to conquer the throne? Jesse, will you throw that slide up real quick? Or Anthony? So when we were in Jerusalem, it was really cool. We, we saw the Mount of Olives, we were on the eastern side, and, and you look up and, and you can really see it very clearly. This, is, this would be the Mount of Olives here, and you're looking down, you can see the Dome of the Rock. Just to the right of that is a gate. It's called the Eastern Gate. It's called the Beautiful Gate, okay? And just being there is this phenomenal feeling because you're looking at that gate. Now, by the way, this is the gate Jesus came, comes through in our story, okay? He, he marches through that gate on the donkey. This is where they would have been laying palm branches and things down. Go to the next one. You can see a little closer here. This is the gate right here. You notice anything about it? It's walled up, right? It's walled up. They bricked it up. Who did that? The Turkish did that. They, they, they walled it up because they read there's a prophecy in Ezekiel specifically that says that God is going to come through that gate. He's not going to come through that gate again until he comes to rule and reign, until he comes to have his true coronation, when he comes to truly take the throne and to rule his people in Israel from Jerusalem specifically. So they wall it up. Here's the funny thing is there's another prophecy in Ezekiel that says that it will be walled up. (laughs) And that you think that's going to stop him? I mean, honestly. It says when he lands on the mountain, it's going to split in half. You think that's going to stop him? Now, Jesus, in our story, is the lamb. He comes in. He's the prince of peace. He's coming in to go to the cross to die for his people. When he comes back again, he's the lion. He's not messing around. He's coming to... Not, not, to, not to have his throne handed to him. He's coming to take his throne. And nothing will stop him. Not that wall. Not that door being blocked in. It was really interesting too. We found out, if you can kind of see right at the, at the foot of it, there's a graveyard there. They planted a graveyard there because they thought, surely no Jew will walk through a graveyard, right? I thought that was hilarious. What's gonna happen when Jesus comes back? The dead are gonna rise. <laughs> like, hello? Anyways. You can take that down. Lastly, and then we'll we'll be done. Why does Jesus get to the temple, look around, and then go home? (laughs) Why does he go back to Bethany? Why why doesn't anything happen? This is important. This is not the temple Jesus was interested in. Do you know that? 
The temple, the one that Herod built, the one that had ginormous stones that was literally one of the most amazing things that people in that area had ever seen, just this phenomenal structure where, where God would meet with, with man and where they could sacrifice for, for atonement for their sins. This, this amazing pinnacle of Israel, this amazing pinnacle of Jerusalem was not what Jesus wanted. You know that? Do you know what it was that he wanted? The eternal temple. Do you know what that is? It's you guys. You know that? Jesus goes through Jerusalem. He goes to the temple and he looks around. This isn't it. This is not what I'm interested in ruling, is the physical temple. Though it may have a place to play in the future, this is not what I'm interested in ruling. Ephesians says that we are living stones, that we make up the temple of God, that God's glory is housed eternally within his people, that we are fitly joined together. Jesus' kingdom is not of this earth, right? It's of heaven. And he's not interested in the physical He's not interested in setting up primarily a physical kingdom. He's interested in an eternal and a heavenly kingdom where his glory dwells within his church, where we are living stones fitly joined together. That's the temple Jesus was interested in. Why was it so anticlimactic? Because that wasn't it. That was the point. That was not the real triumphant entry. That's the name on top of there, but it doesn't necessarily mean it is. It was cool. It was cool that he came into Jerusalem and that people laid down their palm branches. Whatever, that's cool, but that's not the real coronation of the king. The real coronation is when he comes through that gate, when he takes Jerusalem, and he has not only a physical kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom, where he has gone to the Father to create mansions with many houses for all of us to live in, right? That's the focus. Jesus was never concerned about the physical kingdom, and Israel missed that, and they're still missing that. All they can think about is the temple. They're worshiping a wall that's closest to the temple because all they can think about is the physical. When Jesus came, for not the physical. He came for a heavenly kingdom. My kingdom is not here, he said. I'm just glad we're a part of that, right? I'm glad that we're those stones. Guys, listen. Listen, Jesus doesn't walk into us as the temple and go, whatever. He doesn't. He's pleased with us. You know that? He's pleased with us. He delights in us. He's atoned for us. He pulled us out of the muck when we didn't deserve it. He saved us when we hated him. He's pleased with his church. Though we struggle, though we drift, though we wane, he is pleased with us and he does not walk into his heavenly temple, you and I, and say, this is lame, I'm going home. He says, this is it. This was what I was focused on the whole time when I delivered Israel from Egypt and and, and created the Passover feast to represent, it was all to represent this. It was all focused to this, that there would be an eternal dwelling and that you and I would be part of that and that he would dwell in the middle and that it would be all about him, the king of kings forever, amen? It's not really a big application. It's not really a big, hey, go home and do this. But sometimes we don't need application. Sometimes what we need is Jesus is awesome. (laughs) And he is humble. And he is worthy. And he is a good king. Amen? Let's let's stand and pray together. Jesus, thank you for modeling for us what it looks like to be a servant. Thank you that uh, you could have come in and, and just taken over, Lord. You could have come in and claimed your throne, but you chose to set that aside. You chose to go to the cross to take the wrath of the Father poured out on you so that we could be part of your church, so that we could forever enjoy your glory in heaven. 
God, that's just such an amazing truth. Lord, I pray that every time that we read this story, that we would be reminded, Jesus, that you're not disappointed in this temple because you've made it, you've fashioned it. It's not dead stones put together by men, it's living stones fashioned together by you, Heavenly Father. God, I thank you that we get to be part of an eternal dwelling. I thank you that we get to spend eternity focused and centered around your greatness and your glory, Lord. God, thank you for this story. Thank you, Jesus, for being not only our creator, but for being our priest, for relating to us, to teaching us, Father, for for leading us in every way of our lives, God. I pray for heritage, God. I pray, Lord, that we would be a church that is truly satisfied in you, God, that we don't look to this world for anything, that we look to you, God. So we love you, Lord. I just pray you would go with us tonight as we go. And uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.